ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, this is The Money on RN Summer. I'm Richard Aidey. Christmas has almost disappeared in the rearview mirror and we're well past the sales that start on Boxing Day. But a lot of us are still on holiday and we're spending money, whether it's on new clothes or things for around the house, buying tickets for sport or entertainment or treating yourself to a new subscription. And enjoyable as all of this is, you need to pay attention because all of them cost more than you think. And that's what we're talking about today on The Money. If you ever get a new credit card or change your bank, you'll be confronted by something. How many goods and services you pay for every month? Car insurance on the 3rd, newspaper on the 9th, streaming service on the 11th, mobile on the 16th, and on and on and on, which is bad enough. Worse is when some of the things you're paying for, you're not using. You'd forgotten about them. They hadn't forgotten about you. Neil Mahoney at Stanford University wanted to know how much the businesses concerned are making out of our forgetfulness. We find looking across 10 popular subscription plans that companies are making between 20% more and 200% more because people aren't paying attention or find it difficult to cancel subscriptions that they no longer want. I think we should first of all, kind of put out how common they are, because my own experience is they seem to be increasingly common. No, that's exactly right. And what motivated me and and my co-authors to start on the project was our personal experience of paying for more and more things by subscription, from TV to music to security to the food deliveries on the one hand, and on the second hand, we all had experiences where we'd pay for things for much longer than we intended, and we'd be looking through a credit card receipt, or you know, our spouse or a kid would say, you know, are we still subscribed to this? And we say, well, yeah, we are still subscribed, but we haven't used it in the last six months. So, yeah. you know, we had, through our personal experience, noticed that this was a sort of growing phenomenon. We we wanted to measure how important it was for the economy more broadly. It, what it underlines, I think, Neil, is is how much the subscription economy has grown in the last few years. I, I made a program about the subscription economy about, I think, three or four years ago, and it was a real thing in Australia, but not a big thing. It's more of a thing now. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, we, we were looking at data from the US which showed that it had grown by a factor of four uh, over the last 10 years. And, you know, I I think our research suggests one reason why is that companies can make much more money when they sell things via subscription than via sort of uh, one-off transactions. Mm. And one of the things that I think you probably capture is that companies make it easy to sign up for things. It's a bit trickier to cancel. That's right. And, you know, we've been trying to come up with good names for this, but it's a little bit like a lobster trap, 
It's something that's easy to get into, but once you're inside, it's harder to get out. Uh, and so there have been some policy efforts in the U.S. and I know around the world uh, to try and make it just as easy to cancel as it is to subscribe. So, you know, hopefully there'll be some progress there, but this has been, you know, an issue. Well, of course, and, and I've been guilty of this myself at times too, not everybody scrutinizes their credit card accounts. For people who, who never do or who just aren't very financially literate, are they at risk of being exploited? My sense is that even the most financially sophisticated people would have busy lives. And if you're paying for dozens of things by subscription, it's very easy to you know, forget a couple subscriptions and pay for you know months or, or even years after you've used the product. So I think that this is something where think the the requirements placed on individuals keeping track of dozens of subscriptions is is really just too difficult for nearly anybody to do. Well, Neil, I want you to tell us a bit about your research because I understand you looked, I think you said earlier, you looked at 10 popular subscription services. That's exactly right. So, you know, in our research, uh, we started, you know, with a set of the most popular uh, subscription products. And, you know, we narrowed our analysis to subscriptions that we could track uh, in a clean way in our data. And so, you know, we, we paired that set of subscriptions with data from one of the large payment networks, one to sort of identify people who are paying for subscriptions, and then to ask a question, you know, how long would people subscribe if they were required or if they chose to pay attention to their subscriptions all the time uh, so that they wouldn't overpay. And what did you find when customers get a new credit card? Because that is the time, isn't it, that you often realize what you've got going out on a monthly basis. Exactly. So the key sort of aha moment in the paper was when we realized that we get to see what people would do if they were fully paying attention when their credit card expires or when they receive a new credit card in the mail. Because that's when they you know, get an email asking them to resubscribe. And that's when they're forced to make you know, what we call an active choice. Do I want to continue with this product? Or if I don't actively want to continue with this product, then I'll be unsubscribed. And, and what we see in the data is around this period when people have to make an active choice, when they are necessarily paying attention. Uh, that cancellation rates jump by a factor of four. Wow. And what effect does that have on company revenues when that happens? We find that because consumers are, are not paying attention fairly high fraction of the time, company revenues are between 20 and 200% larger than they would be if consumers were paying attention every month. And I think the average you found was the average plan, uh, the estimate was 85% higher than they would be if people were making an active decision. That makes me wonder how reliant companies are on this. You kind of wonder if, if some of them just wouldn't work as businesses if we were paying attention properly all the time. Yeah, our, our results do you know, raise important questions about what companies would do if consumers 
you know, were paying attention all the time. Would they increase the quality of their products? Would they cut the price? Uh, and there's probably some companies uh, which would have business models that, that don't actually make sense in an environment where consumers are you know, fully paying attention. What impact might there be if companies were required to kind of bring this to our attention, to issue reminder renewal notices pretty regularly? So two points. One, you know, I think you and I you know, can realize just from introspection that subscriptions offer some convenience. That if we were asked uh, every week, every month, whether we'd want to renew a subscription to a newspaper we liked or you know, our utility bill, that that would become a hassle because sometimes we would forget to sign up. But on the other hand, not being reminded at all and spending months or years subscribed to a product that we don't want is costing us a lot of money. And so what we do in the paper is we examine some intermediate options. For example, a regulation that required consumers uh, to pay attention every six months. Maybe companies would send them an email and say, you have to make an active decision to uh, continue with this product. We find that such a policy would reduce the excess revenue that firms make by about half. So it would, would solve half of this problem, but wouldn't expose consumers to the hassle of having to decide every week or every month to continue with some product. Thank you very much for joining us today on The Money. Thank you for having me. Neil Mahoney is a professor of economics at Stanford University. This is The Money with me, Richard Aidey. Forgetting a subscription is one thing. Feeling like you've been played, like you've been made into a mug, is something else. I'll tell you what I mean. And this has happened to me. You want to buy something online and you top or do something, book tickets, and the price is, well, let's say it's $100. That is what you're going to pay. But it's not what you end up paying. Ralph Steinhauser, who's at the ANU, has been looking at what's called drip pricing. So drip pricing is essentially when you have a headline or base price and extra unavoidable fees are added on while you're going through the checkout and purchasing procedure. Right. So you, you, you start in to buy, I don't know, an airline ticket or a concert ticket. And as you progress, you find that you're being loaded up. That's right. So there will be maybe in different steps. That's what we're calling it dripping on. So extra fees are getting dripped on. But you end up with a higher price with extra fees included at the very end when you need to pay than you were originally thinking given the headline or base price. Mm. We, we may not like it, but do we know how effective it is from the, the seller's point of view? Does it work? Oh, it works. So wherever... Uh, retailers or sellers in general get the opportunity to use them, they will. They're very profitable for them. We know from some studies that have been conducted in the US by StubHub, which is a reseller for concert tickets or you know events and so forth. Uh, they have uh, done an internal study, but I found it increases their profits by 20%. So that is their having a lower headline price, get more customers in that way, and then they add on these extra fees later on in order to ramp up the total that people have to pay for things. So, Ralph, why does it work? Because 
We always get the choice whether we want to continue. It's, it's shown to us. There it is. It's more than we thought it was going to be when these prices are, are dripped up. Is there something that kind of keeps us going? Yeah, there's, so there's a few concepts that from psychology that we attribute to playing a role here. One of them is the our myopic behavior, so that we always discount stuff in the future and put a much higher emphasis on things that happen right now, which means if it's a task or a costly thing that we have to do, we try to procrastinate that and put that in the future. If it's something nice, we reward ourselves right away rather than waiting with the reward, that type of thing, right? So which leads to, for example, procrastination. And so when you have gone through a lengthy checkout procedure, you might not feel at all like uh, doing that right away again and spending another half an hour or so to do so. And so you might procrastinate that or you realize and then just rather instead of incurring those extra costs right away, just bite the bullet and pay the extra fees that you didn't expect. And so this is one of the factors that contribute to us not wanting to go through the checkout procedure again. And it's not just, is it, about that desire for immediate rewards. It also plays on our fear of of losing out. This is about another psychological concept called loss aversion. Yeah, so loss aversion is um, particularly relevant for ticket pricing and events and so forth. The idea or the concept from loss aversion is part, it's part of prospect theory. So Kahneman and Tversky's prospect theory, uh, very influential papers uh, from, from the end of the 70s. And uh, the idea is that you judge things relative to a reference point. So how much you gain or lose relative to that reference point. That reference point could be a status quo or an expectation that you have. And we really dislike losses relative to that reference point, but twice as much as we like gains. So we really, in other words, we really hate losses. Yeah. We actually, I understand, we actually feel more pain from losing something than we get pleasure from getting the same thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So how does that work when, say, booking tickets to a show? That, how does loss aversion actually feed into the, the matrix? Yeah, so if there is a really large add-on fees, large drip prices added onto a concert ticket to the initial headline prices that you see, then and, and this is the case in America where this is up to 50% that's being added on this. Luckily, some good um, sort of consumer laws in Australia prevent it from just being anywhere near as extreme as over there. But if you have 50% extra added on, you can see how that makes a difference. So the following happens. You have all these different categories from the cheapest tickets to the VIP tickets, and you have a certain price budget, right? You might be thinking, you know, how much do I have left in my spending portfolio for entertainment this month or this year? And therefore, you choose the sort of highest category that you can afford, not realizing there might be a substantial extra uh, fee that's being dripped on later in a checkout process. Then you go through and you, by this stage, you have thought about sitting in those seats and seeing the person from close up and so mm. forth. And this changes your expectations and arguably changes your reference point. So now when you go through the checkout procedure and it gets 50% more expensive, it actually would be more than you would normally want to afford with your budget for entertainment. In that case, it does feel like a loss going back to a lower category ticket because you already got used to the idea of actually being in, this, in those nice seats. And therefore, you since the loss hurts you 
doubly hurts you so much more, you're willing to stick with the higher ticket price and cough up the extra money uh, just to not go down, so to say. Yeah. As you say that, I can kind of imagine going through it. Are we kind of habituated to this now? If I buy a ticket to go to the cinema or if I go to the football, there's always a booking charge as well. And I'm used to that. It's not the price that's advertised, but there at the end, it'll pop up. There's a little booking fee, which in no way represents the cost to the vendor of actually providing this ticket, which they're going to send to my phone. But I just pay it because it happens all the time. I'm, I'm used to it. Yeah, so in Australia, we have the problem that these fees are really small and they get added on sort of, you know, on every, every occasion. And so we just truck it off. But there is a little bit room for uh, potentially a bit better consumer protection for those events. So, for example, that my daughter went to the Barbie movie and they went for Tuesday price tickets, $13, and they got 13% added in terms of a booking, as you say, booking fee, which is only $1.65, but it's small, but per seat and no reason to not advertise that up front and include that in a ticket price, but rather hide it as a per seat booking fee at the end, which the vendor already knew in the beginning was going to happen. You'd have to say obscuring that final price is deceptive. Are there any moves to protect consumers against this, this practice, which seems to really pay off for the, for the retailer? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the ACCC and generally the laws that we have in Australia against misleading prices being displayed is is pretty good. Therefore, we are in much better situation compared to our US counterparts, for example, where we have these sometimes 50% being added on to a concert ticket and so forth. But it still remains these uh, nibbling smallish instances where there is an unavoidable fee added at the end, um, which they seem to get away with. So there could be sort of that little bit extra room for making a difference there for customers. Another area might be shipping costs could uh, be a part of a dripping fee in particular when, I mean, there's they're unavoidable. Um, arguably, they ha- they, you know, they need to be there, but they often vary in size substantially depending on which store you're purchasing in. In that regard, uh, there could be some form of potential protection there. One more, the, the US, for example, is considering the, the Department of Transport over there is considering to force airlines again to include seating and maybe even luggage in their advertised price. So you could think of uh, having at least some seats that you can select from for free rather than charging every single seat that you may select and, and uh, sort of trick you into selecting and paying that extra fee. Ralph, you're an expert in this. You're extremely aware of it. Do you find that knowing that this is what's happening, does it give you any protection? Does it give you a kind of superpower to avoid doing it? Superpower, I wouldn't say so. So what you what you can do as being aware of these sort of things, you can... For example, with concert tickets, um, you could uh, quickly go through the checkout, towards the checkout, and see if there's any extra fees being added on, and then changing the ticket rank or the the seats that you may want to book. Or similarly, for shipping costs, uh, before you go through a lengthy filling your shipping basket with a lot of add-ons to the item that you were lured in with the headline price of, of buying, you could actually quickly go and see what the actual shipping costs are. And if they're substantial and unexpected, you might change uh, the, the shop that you go for and uh, sort of not continue 
uh, sort of adding things to it. This is the route you're going to have to go down. Go and have a look first. That's right. Ralph, it's been a kind of cautionary tale, and I'm sure that people listening now can really relate to this. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Ralph Steinheiser is in the Centre for Social Research and Methods at the ANU. Whether you can avoid the drip pricing or not, you make the purchase. And in a couple of days or a week or whatever it is, your trainers turn up. But you haven't bought from this brand before, and though they look fabulous, they do not fit. That's frustrating. But it's not the end of the world. You can get your money back. All you have to do is fill in the form, which is thoughtfully provided, put them in the packaging, and return them. Couldn't be easier. And it doesn't cost you a cent. But Simone Pinekofer from Michigan State University says it does end up costing a lot. In 2022, it is actually estimated that it costs about $816 billion for retailers to process and, you know, incur the returns. And that number is actually almost as much as the U.S. in general spends on public schools, or it even doubled the cost of returns from 2020. Oftentimes, this process actually takes about two to three times longer than when initially a retailer is fulfilling a consumer's order. So it is estimated that a product, for example, that's valued at 50 bucks could cost the retailer up to like $33 when it actually gets returned. So that's about 66% of the value of the product. All in that initial processing, unpacking, inspecting, repacking, sending where it has to go next. Some of these returns are going to be because the customers changed their mind or or, the, or it doesn't fit. They've got the wrong size. But sometimes people are going to send something back because there's something wrong with it. Now, with these defective goods, can anything be done with them to sort of save some money? So often what happens when you have, for example, a laptop that had a quality issue, got returned, you can send it back to the manufacturer and they can fix it. And then that refurbished laptop laptop would re-enter the consumer market and is often then sold actually at a lower cost. So it's really it's really a financial decision that the retailer has to make whether it is feasible to refurbish products or whether the products rather mm. go to waste. So Simone, what happens if it's not if it's not feasible from the retailer's point of view? Do they just throw it away or because that would be a huge, huge waste of money, it seems to me. Oftentimes, a lot of return products simply end up in landfills. So in 2019, for example, returned products generated about 5 billion pounds of waste that simply ended up in landfills around the world. And actually, this number almost doubled to 9.5 billion pounds in 2022. And I mean, of course, there are other options. I just recently talked to the CEO of a new startup that buys return goods and then resells them through a storefront. And oftentimes, nonprofit organizations might also be interested in purchasing or receiving donated return goods, which then they can, of course, use to help the people in need. We've been talking about this across the system, but from the consumer's point of view, it's mostly free. We don't have to pay 
any of these costs, or we don't directly, and we'll come back to that, has it always been the case that retailers have kind of had to had to wear these costs? In the past, for example, customers or consumers who wanted to return items, they were actually expected to pay for the shipping mm. cost or yeah. to pay a restocking fee. And then, of course, Amazon, being that you know big leader in the field, began offering free returns and provide easy drop-off locations in a very convenient way and for free. How sustainable is that for everybody else, uh, being able to to swallow the, the costs of free returns? Because they're not free. There's huge costs involved. For a lot of retailers, offering free returns is simply not feasible from a financial perspective. So actually, the number of retailers that are now requiring consumers to pay for return shipping increased in 2022 from about 33% to 41%. So there's definitely a change that we see here in the retail landscape in the U.S. from this completely free returns Mm. to, hey, let the consumer pay for shipping because otherwise it's not feasible for us from a financial perspective. Of course, from the from the retailer's point of view, it's it's worth avoiding as many returns as possible. Are they are they able to do things to kind of reduce returns? Yeah, there are a few things that retailers are doing. So oftentimes what we see is that retailers actually have shortened their return window, let's say 90 days, and now they might have shortened it to 60 or 30 days. They also, of course, stop to offer free returns or limited the number of products that you know consumers can return other options that i've seen by engaging with industry professionals is that they try to intervene as early as possible to actually eliminate or mitigate product returns Hmm. so there are startups out there that use predictive analytics so they use consumer data they know what's the cause of the return what's the product and so on and they help retailers to identify products with an unusual high return rate, or they can identify consumers that are using the return policy, for example, so retailers can intervene and block consumers that have an unusual high return rate from returning products, or if there is an unusually high return rate for product, they can start looking into, okay, what is the reason? Is it because it's not clearly communicated on the website what the color is and that is off? So that would be an easy fix. Or is it that a quality issue, then the retailer can go and dig deeper and see whether there's issues with their suppliers or manufacturers of that product. Returns are not free. They feel like they're free, but they're not. They cost in terms of time and effort and waste, carbon, landfill, lost sales to retailers of 816 billion US dollars. Ultimately, we have to pay for this, don't we? It's going to be re- reflected in the prices that we pay. Yeah, so we we are going to pay for it. I think consumers will already feel it by having to pay for returns. But then also we will feel it in terms of making a negative impact on our environment with our behavior, right, of, you know, purchasing the the shoes in two different sizes, two different colors with the intention to you know, returning one of them, for example. So it it really is in our hands and changing also our behavior when it comes to product returns. Simone Pinekofer is in the supply chain management department at Michigan State. 
And look, that's almost it for now. But next week, one of the people you'll hear from is Alison Pennington, author of Generation f And here's a little of what she has to say about the situation that young people find themselves in. They essentially then go into an entirely new world of work that is unrecognisable from that of their parents. Mm. They are in worse quality jobs, jobs that are less likely to be able to build a life out of. They are jumping between multiple short-term experiences and then they're at the, the forefront of the decline of worker power. So that's where they you see the explosion in wage theft. And there's a, a startling statistic that half of all 21 to 24-year-olds report earnings below minimum wage. She's very clear-eyed about this. I hope you join me for that. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.